So today I have the pleasure of having Thomas Lee Nielsen with me on the show. And welcome, Thomas, and thank you very much for joining us. And I guess, just as a first question, can I clear up once and for all whether it's Lee Nielsen or Lai Nielsen? Lee Nielsen. Lee Nielsen, fantastic. I think you've been making tools now since the early 1980s, and I, and I guess I'd probably describe you as the premier plane-making company in the world, which I know leaves out a lot of your other fantastic tools, but you're quite a unique company. So how would you describe Lee Nielsen in terms of its purpose and in terms of what you guys do? Well, um, first of all, thank you very much. And well, this is our 40th anniversary year. So I've been making tools here since 1981. And my um, main purpose was to provide high quality woodworking tools at a reasonable price to people who want to do hand tool woodworking. And that started with specialty planes that were no longer available, uh, except as antiques. Um, but then it expanded pretty rapidly into tools that were available from other manufacturers like um, you know, small block planes, uh, number four smoothing plane, and so forth. And then we began to get uh, involved with saws and chisels and workbenches. So the focus is on tools for furniture making, pretty specifically. And that has increased our line, you know, a great deal over the years. And unfortunately, right now, we're not able to make some of those tools because of the pandemic. Yes, and I, and I think uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions on that in a little bit, but I think it's fair to say that you're a company that embraces, let's say, excellent traditional tools, you know, focused on proven designs and quality rather than gadgetry or trying the next best thing. Uh, and I know that you do have a number of improvements or refinements on your product, but but you're really looking at taking a proven design, making that tool a little bit better where you can, not looking at deviating or going off on a crazy new design for anything. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I don't like gadgets. I like tools that do their job really well and that are as simple as possible for uh, ease of use and, and uh, doing the very best they can. So um, I try to keep things simple. Thomas, in terms of, um, you know, maybe for listeners who are not familiar with your products and if you're interested in a product, you'll know about it and maybe some ancillary ones, but you guys make quite a lot of products. And in terms of a sense of scale, um, in terms of the volume of tools that you're producing annually, the number of people, could you just give some idea of that scale, you know, what, what you're looking at in a normal year there? Well, we make a lot of planes, a lot of chisels, and a lot of saws. Those are the really the core tools that we make. We have about 75 people working in the shop, maybe around 65 uh, at the moment. We have had more, uh, we have had less, but it's been around that number for a few years now. Because we do a variety of different things, that number of people is actually rather small. Um, we have two guys making saws. We have one guy finishing all the chisels. We have most of our people working in the machine shop uh, on planes and related items, which takes in machining, polishing, grinding, and finishing, and making all of the parts that are related, like blades and handles and screws and everything that goes with them. So there's a, a wide variety of, of activities going on, and we produce enough tools, but maybe not 
enough always. I think that last year has brought on some absolutely crazy challenges that I you know, think of very much unique in terms of modern times. And I was on a forum, you know, a few weeks back and someone posted a question and, and you know, hence the reason for reaching out to you. And I, and I wanted to read that and maybe just use that as a, a base for the conversation because the person had asked the question to say, you know, where have all the planes gone? I went to Lee Valley to look for a skew rabbit plane. They were out of stock. So I got to looking around at the rest of the planes. They were out of stock. <laughs> Depending on which blade type you were looking for, some were coming back and they wouldn't show and they wouldn't be back in stock until May. That's plain crazy. Then I went to Lee Nielsen, same story, looked at their bench brains, you know, the only ones that were in stock at the time with the five and the half. And then his question was, you know, did a bunch of people buy new planes during the lockdown so that they had something to work with on the manufacturers having trouble with the materials? Did the aliens come down and buy them all? Just <laughs> got me wondering. And and I thought, you know, it was amazing how many people sort of jumped in in defense of uh, both yourself and, uh, you know, Lee Valley and, you know, spoke to the the troubles that they thought you guys might be having. But I wanted to reach out and just give you a little bit of a platform just to talk to, you know, what does this really mean to you from a material shortage and a personal point of view? And, and what have the struggles been that you've been dealing with? Well, it's all of those things. So, what happened for us, I can't speak to Lee Valley, but what happened to us is that um, in March, uh, we basically had to shut the sh machine shop down for three months, which is, you know, three months out of 12 months is a quarter of the year. So a quarter of the year's production disappeared. That's just, you know, you can't make that up overnight. In the meantime, yes, there were a lot of people buying tools because they were home and able to do woodworking and perhaps getting new, you know, uh, new people involved in woodworking. So the demand increased at the time that the capacity uh, became constrained. That situation we've had to manage as best we can. As far as the supply chain is concerned, we have certainly had some problems, but that hasn't been the biggest problem. There are always issues when you're dealing with castings and our foundries have experienced the same problems we have with shutdowns and missing people from work. So they've done a very good job, but it has not always been able, you know, possible for them to supply us with what we needed when we needed it. So the situation is improving, but it takes a long time. I mean, I've been making these tools for 40 years, and one reason we were able to have such a large range of tools and keep most of them in stock is that we had, you know, years to build up our capacity. And typically during the summer months, demand for woodworking tools was a little slow. So usually in the summer, we are able to build up some inventory for the fall and Christmas season, which are busy. And uh, this past year, the fall and Christmas season were extremely busy, but we did not have the opportunity to build up stock during the summer. We were shipping as many tools as we could make, which we still are. And as a result, we've had to focus our energies on the tools that are most popular, which means that some of the tools that are less popular that we might make normally a couple of hundred a year, which I like to be able to offer our customers, uh, we just don't have time to do those tools right now. On the people side, or for a personal point of view, I mean, I guess you've 
you've also got two problems. The one is is that by the nature of the quality of the product that you make, you can't just rapidly scale up and say, oh, well, we lost three months and now we'll you know just double capacity. You need skilled artisans. Are there still a lot of uh, restrictions in place in terms of the the workforce at the workshop? Is there still an impact of that or is it really now a matter of just trying to play catch up to where you were? Well, first of all, you're correct. It's not easy to scale up quickly. There are a variety of constraints. One of them is people. Uh, we live in a rural area in Maine. There's not a lot of people around here to begin with. So finding good people is a challenge, uh, always is. But what's happened recently in the last few months is that you know the, the COVID situation in Maine has really changed so that now there's a lot of cases and there are a lot of people who are needing testing and missing work because they're needing testing. During the first six months of the pandemic, Maine was fairly free of COVID, but that's no longer true. So we're very, very careful about protecting our employees. And if anybody has symptoms that are suspicious, we ask them to get a test and they're not allowed to be at work until they have a negative test. If a key employee is out because of that, out for a week or 10 days, it really, really hurts. So that's what we're coping with right at the moment. We've been very lucky. Nobody so far has had COVID, but friends and relatives of people working here have. So we're just managing this right now on a day-to-day basis. That makes sense. And, you know, from from what I've seen, I'm, I'm I'm on the other side of the world, but, you know, it also does seem like the U.S. has been particularly hard hit with that and, uh, you know, certainly can understand the concern and the safety mechanisms that everyone, I guess, worldwide is putting in place, but, you know, is particularly relevant over there. And, you know, it's it's obviously a terrible thing, I think, not only from the the impact of the disease, but also I, I found here locally the uncertainty of it so that, you know, someone's going in for a test and not knowing what the results are, not knowing you know, how a family or loved one is doing, it's, it's, it certainly comes quite close to home when somebody, you know, in your, in your circle is affected by it. There's a lot of anxiety and fear as well. So, yeah, well, we're just, you know, we're, we're carrying on. And um, I think as far as managing a very difficult situation, we've been doing a good job and that, you know, in, in protecting our employees comes first, really. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that as things normalize and vaccines get rolled out and whatever, you can you can always get back to usual. Whereas if someone's tried to push that envelope through the pandemic, I mean, the, the consequences are quite uh, dire. And, you know, I, I know you sort of spoke about that you're focusing on the high demand tools. And, and I guess that also answers the other question, because one of my friends, Brad, will uh, never forgive me if I don't ask you when there's going to be a left-handed uh, scuba lock plane again because he, he tells me he's been kicking himself uh, since about March last year because he, he had the right-hand version. And I think, and, I, and I'm also guilty of this, I also bought a right-hand uh, uh, version and I was lucky to get some stock from you guys during the pandemic. But he bought the right-hand and said he'll, you know, he'll buy a left-hand if the right-hand is, is great. And now he loves the right-hand version. And it seems like that left one is going to be off the off the list for a little bit of time into the future. I saw one sell on eBay the other day for $350 used, which is, you know, like an insane premium over, over uh, what a new one would go for. Yeah. Well, it's a specialty tool that um, we probably won't make for quite some time. And the numbers that we usually sell of the left-hand skew block are pretty small. Even the right-hand skew block is is not 
a priority at the moment. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't like disappointing our customers at all. On the other hand, if we spend time making those tools, then we disappoint a whole lot of other customers who want to buy, you know, low angle block planes or low angle jack planes or number seven joiners, um, which are the more mainstream tools. And so we've had, yes, we've had to refocus rather dramatically on the tools that we're focused on. How long that will remain to be the case, I don't know. That's that's a function not only of our capacity, but of increased demand on those particular tools. I guess that, you know, one of the difficulties, I suppose, in adjusting to the situation is, is that one doesn't know the demand that happened last year from people who've gone home and worked from home. Is that going to be a constant? Does that mean that there's really new entrants into the, the woodworking space that are going to keep on buying things? Or, you know, was that a blip because people were at home and looking for something, you know, to stop them from going mad? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very hard to answer that question. We do not know. Yeah. I know from a personal point of view that for me, one of the things that really helped me keep on, you know, the sanity was in spite of not going to the office and not seeing people, I was taking my commute time and turning it into a, you know, woodworking time. And I think there's many stories of people who've been back at home and, you know, either reignited a passion for that or started a new passion for woodworking. And and I think that's great to see. I think we'll only benefit as a, a hobby and I guess as an industry from that in the in the future. But I guess that also then probably impacts you know your ability to do r&d and develop new stuff that you guys would you know typically have been planning to work on during this year and next year as covid had a big impact on that i you know i guess you haven't had the luxury to go and put 15 people on working on a lee nielsen plow plane as an example when you're trying to catch up with what's going on in the in the factory that's uh, precisely the right example yes <laughs> It's good news. I think that if people, there are more people coming into uh, hand tool woodworking and, you know, people who've already been interested in it, having the time to do more, that's really, I think that's really good news in the long run for everybody, including the people who are able then to enjoy, you know, woodworking at home more than they ever could before. You know, we're living in a, a great time, you know, in terms of availability of tools and resources. And I think also, education, which I know you guys have uh, invested in, uh, you know, DVDs and and supported that, but the internet and books and, uh, you know, it's really a great time if you want to get into the hobby. I don't think there's been a better time in terms of having access to great hand tools, um, you know, as we've got at the, the present. Absolutely. One of the most interesting snippets I've heard about you is being a distant relative of Jonathan Fisher, who was the you know subject of uh, Joshua Klein's book uh, a while back, and I, I found it fascinating that you know back up your family tree, you also had this incredible ancestor who was making tools in essentially the same nick of the woods, you know, a couple of centuries ago. Um, did you know a little bit about that, or you know, how, how did you discover that, or was that something you always knew of? Or well, I always knew about Jonathan Fisher, and I yeah. knew all many of the things that he was involved with, which in those days was frontier survival. So he built his own house. He made his own tools. He made, you know, um, furniture for sale. He was a Renaissance man. Um, I was not as familiar with the tools until Joshua came along uh, working on that project when I was able to see a lot of the tools that are in a local museum here that I had not seen before. So the, the actual tool part of it was something that was really fun to learn more about. 
and Joshua did a fantastic job on that book. All of that information that he unearthed was there, but nobody really paid much attention to it. Um, and it's a unique story. Joshua did a wonderful job. You know, I mean, I, I really think that that book is a phenomenal book at so many, you know, so many different levels. And it's it's really nice that his story has been exposed. I, I read a autobiography by um, Mary Chase, which you know speaks about him as a as a whole person, if I can put it that way. But you know, doesn't really dwell on the woodworking and making the tools and the you know tinkering with clocks, etc. And and so I, I found it absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. He built his own clock. And I mean, you look at the pictures of that and, and I just, I tinker every now and again in the shop and try and make a wooden plane or something and, you know, try and fettle it and get it to work. But if I think about the amount of precision using the tools he was using and the constraints he would have had to to sit down and make your own clock, I think is, uh, at that time, I think it is something absolutely incredible. Yes, it was. And the Chase biography was really the first full biography of him, but it did not as you say, go into um, a lot of the details on tools and manufacture that he was deeply involved in for all of his life, really, and from when he was a student. Yeah, he's an incredible story, and uh, you know, I guess we can always speculate, but you know, it feels to me if he'd uh, not chosen to follow the calling you know, to, to minister to the people, um, I'm sure he would be a, a really well-renowned figure. I think he was definitely an incredibly talented person at many um, angles. I guess talking of books, you know, Thomas, um, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't want to let the show you know uh, go by without asking you just to maybe tell us what are you reading at the moment, and if you had a favorite woodworking book to recommend to people, what would that be? Well, really, there's so many to choose from. One of my favorite recent books is the Welsh Chair Book by John Brown. And um, that's not so much a how-to book as a why-to book. John Brown was a unique person with a really unusual take on on woodworking, and I had met him and and known him briefly. In fact, he actually lived in Maine for a while, and the connection started with reading his book, which was inspiring, and that was many years ago. But it's been reissued by Lost Art Press, and I think that is an inspiring story, an inspiring philosophy for a lot of people because John Brown really went his own way and showed what was possible with very, very little in the way of tools, equipment, uh, shop space, etc. So that's one of my all-time favorites. That's uh... Great, Thomas, and thank you very much for it. I mean, I guess I'd, I'd probably say in uh, in closing that many people would also say that, you know, you'd gone your own way. I mean, making quality tools in the 1980s at a time where, you know, it really felt like it must have been a race to the bottom if I look at the quality of the tools that, you know, have, have come from that era. And you've headed off in completely the opposite direction of making a really good, superb quality product. And, you know, I think on behalf of, Everyone who uses your tools, you know, really a big thank you in terms of that. Uh, I've got a, a number of them in, in my shop. You know, that little uh, little 102 there it lives with me permanently. It's a sort of MVP in my tool shop. And the bench planes are just absolutely sublime when I pick them up and I work with them. It's, it's really an absolute joy to use them. So I think on behalf of all of the listeners, thank you for, you know, what you've done for quality premium tools. And uh, we really hope that you can get back to full speed and get back to where you want to be as quickly as possible in the future. 
Well, I appreciate that, Ray, very much. And I'll just uh, like to emphasize that um, one of the things to, that we're keeping in mind, of course, all the time here as we manage the current situation is that after keeping our employees safe, building the best quality tools that we can is our priority. So that takes a little longer and people may have to wait a little longer for a tool, but uh, we're not going to ship something out of here that we're not happy with. Thomas, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on the show today to just give us a little bit of a, a insight into you know what's happening on your side. Really appreciate that. Thank you, Ray. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to hearing from you again. 